Hello, and welcome to Unhedged, a candid discussion of markets and mechanisms. I am your host, Frank Trois, a 25-year-plus veteran of the markets, both bull and bear. Joining me on the show are market participants ranging from hedge funds to fintech, and as diverse and eclectic a group as winemakers and priests. All of us, like you, asking the same question we all do when we turn on the TV nowadays. Why? Unhedged is a weekly podcast, and on occasion a bi-weekly podcast, based on the subject matter. You can subscribe to Unhedged through iTunes. As always, your feedback is appreciated, both good and bad. So let's get started. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com slash unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Unhedged. Uh, I'm your host, Frank Troyce, and for this week's segment, we thought we would bring back Douglas Borthwick. Doug, as always, a pleasure to have you. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So we've certainly had a tumultuous week, to say the least, and I thought that uh, you had some great comments, if you don't mind me jumping into the deep end of the pool, regarding Venezuela. And you had a tongue-in-cheek but spot-on comment in terms of your thoughts as to why the U.S. was really so interested in events that, that were playing out down there. I was wondering if you could expand on that. Well, for sure. One thing that a lot of skeptics have uh, in common is that we all notice some um, things that the U.S. does or certain timings of things. And there's one thing in Venezuela that's very interesting, and that is that you know, a couple of months ago, they threatened to sell their oil in currencies other than the U.S. dollar. Now, the last two other countries have also said this. One is Libya. And the other one is uh, it was uh, Iraq. So in general, if you come out against the U.S. and say you're going to start pricing your commodity in U.S. dollars, then the U.S. suddenly doesn't support you anymore. And I think that's the, the new and reality when, in Venezuela. And how long do you, do you think that they put this out there just as a position threat or were or are they actually seriously moving forward with this? Well, what's really interesting is there's a new Cold War in Venezuela. And as you've probably seen, the supporters for the, new, for the, re, the current regime are Russia, China, Turkey and uh, Mexico, interestingly, Mexico. But for the opposition party is the United States and most of the Western world. And so you've got the West versus the East again, but this time in Venezuela. What's particularly interesting now is that, well, certainly Senator Rubio has noted that he's very anxious about uh, Venezuela asking the Russians to put a Russian base there, which would then put a Russian base in the U.S. hemisphere, which obviously would not be very good for the U.S. So I could see this being much more intense than maybe folks are thinking. And I think that this week has really been about, you know, folks talk about how Trump plays 3D chess. I think he plays three-card Monty. And I think that because while mm. everyone's been watching the budget showdown, or, or, or sorry, the wall showdown, uh, what's been going on in Venezuela is probably much more interesting and much more intense when it comes down to global, uh, global economics. 
What do you think about the fact that, uh, regarding the horse that they decided to support in this race versus the, the current regime and the fact that the military basically came out and said, no, we, we, we're not on the same page well, with what's you? What's interesting is that the military um, has decided, it's sort of, I think, on the fence. And the chap that's in D.C. who represents the military for Venezuela had just come out you know, seconds ago on Twitter saying he now supports the, uh, the opposition leader. And that's, uh, I think that's very interesting because, you know, you also need a couple of dominoes to fall before they all do. And I think there is a movement towards the military switching. And obviously the military is the one that's really in control. Now, also interesting is that it's not the Venezuelan military that's protecting um, Maduro right now. It's actually uh, Russian, um, Russian folks. So it's, uh, it's very interesting things going on down there. What are the U.S.'s options then? The, the, the I mean, the, the, Current leadership has done, uh, the New York Times had a great piece, which, which it's incredible and appalling uh, what, what's actually happened. I mean, at one time, this country was the, the sixth, number six economy in the world uh, and in absolute ruin now. I mean, what, what really are the cards available for the U.S. to play? Is this something where the IMF could come in, the World Bank could no, come in? No what, what, what are the options IMF, available? Uh, thing right now, you know, what's important is you know, the U.S. sees that through Guaido, the, uh, the opposition-controlled uh, leader, they see through him someone that sees the world through the U.S. lens. Now, what they can do is they can offer U.S. support. Now, is U.S. support limited to verbal support? I don't think so. I think it's probably going to include military support, should they be asked. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can't fix their financial system until you fix the leadership. It's the leadership that the U.S. is very interested in, in changing. Now, the international economy uh, is also looking to limit um, how much money is, is flowing into uh, Maduro right now. And a good example would be how the Bank of England this week decided not to send gold shipment to Venezuela at Maduro's uh, bidding. Instead, they've said they'll hold it because they believe that the actual leader is Juan Guaido. That's interesting. On the gold shipments, that brings like, wasn't that one of the things that yeah, Chavez, I, I when he was alive, that, also tried to do? that the Bank of England now is getting involved in Venezuelan affairs. So really for the U.S. then, is it, is it, does it basically just boil down to the two variables of one, uh, strategically for the military, that hemispheric influence, and then two, oil? Is, is, is well, there anything else that, that planners crisis. in D.C. are looking at? And, you know, humanitarian crisis, and then they go out and they're going to get a coalition of the willing to go on their side, which they've gone out and done. You know, they're seeking the U.K. to back them, and they have Spain, France, and other countries. And uh, you know, once you have a lot of countries on one side and a couple of countries on the other, then you can start talking about other options. But certainly this is going to be sold as a humanitarian mission. It doesn't hurt, obviously, that Venezuela has tremendous reserves in oil. Interesting. And, you know, and as, the, as that tube of toothpaste gets squeezed, and, and, and I like your the, the analogy of uh, uh, three-card Monty with the administration. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. As folks were looking the other way with the shutdown, uh, there was actually some bigger things that were occurring in the world. And why don't, why don't we use that to just shift slightly back to Asia? We had a, a guest on recently, Ajay Segal, who um, used to be with GIC and now has his own fund. And he's been talking a lot about that this is the opportunity for emerging markets to snap back. And one of the subtleties uh, as a function of the of the trade war has been that, that uh, now there's a very, very strong bullish case to be made for Indonesia 
And folks are now saying that, you know, this fear of a global slowdown may not be as bad as folks expect. China is going to go through a natural deceleration, but you may see economies like Indonesia uh, start to pick up. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's certainly possible. I think that for emerging markets to get on a good footing, you need to see a weaker dollar globally. And I think that that's something that is obviously in the U.S. administration's um, viewpoint. I think that Indonesia obviously is a you know, has a tremendous population, great reserves, and so it's about them finding the right markets to, to get their product to. I think one of the interesting things about what's happening globally right now is sort of this, this, this weaponization of the U.S. dollar that, that was suggested by um, Sec Treasury Secretary Mnuchin you know, about a year ago when he was discussing what they would do to China if China didn't follow North Korea, if uh, North Korean sanctions. And what they said was, you know, if you're not going to follow North Korean sanctions, then we'll use SWIFT. Now, SWIFT is obviously how you transfer money globally uh, if it's in U.S. dollars. Since then, China's come up with their own SWIFT system to transfer uh, yuan. Russia's come out with their own system. And even um, Europe has come out with their own system called the Special Purpose Vehicle that's going to allow them to bypass Iranian sanctions that have been put in by the United States as well. So the U.S., by weaponizing the uh, U.S. dollar, has allowed other countries to find ways to bypass the U.S. That could obviously affect the domain that the U.S. holds right now as a global reserve currency. It's not going to happen overnight, but certainly there are moves away from the U.S. And if the U.S. currency is no longer the, the value that folks use for trading, then that takes out the U.S. in terms of their international pool. So I think that that's probably one of the interesting stories out there right now. And, and Doug, if you don't mind, if you could drill down into that a little bit, some one of the values we have with with our listeners is that some of them are experienced market professionals and others aren't. Can you just maybe in layman's terms explain what the SWIFT system is and what this change could mean in terms of the move away from the dollar? Yeah, certainly. So when when I'm in Germany and I want to buy something in China, traditionally what I do right now is I would go out there and I would sell euros, buy dollars. That would be with a U.S. bank over SWIFT, which is a messaging system. And then I would sell those dollars and buy yuan and put that into a Chinese bank. And you know, SWIFT is used for that. So if you were to cut off SWIFT from a country, then it would mean that their trade was severely limited. Now, on the back of that, you know, China just released a new five-year blueprint about a week and a half ago, looking for economic and financial integration between southern Guangxi province and Southeast Asia, ostensibly to promote the yuan as a traded currency of choice between nations. And the PBOC also said that China will encourage the use of yuan now in its commodities trade with ASEAN, supporting yuan-denominated lending to projects in the region, seeking to build offshore yuan markets and promote cross-border financial investments. I mean, this is huge. The Chinese are coming out and they're saying, look, we don't need the dollar in order to trade with Asia. Why don't we just have them trade in yuan? And this goes back to mm -hmm. the whole story of rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves, that old song. When Britain ruled trade, they told everyone pays in sterling. Then the U.S. took over after World War II and said, look, everyone used dollars. And now the Chinese are coming out and say, well, you know, maybe you should just pay as a yuan. And I think that's one of the most interesting things that's happening. Now, without SWIFT, Russia came out and they said, you know what? We're going to come out with something called the System for Transfer of Financial Messages, or SPFS. This allows Russia to then transfer money globally without the need of either U.S.'s SWIFT network or the U.S. dollars medium of exchange. And so... That, that's also interesting, too. The European Union creating a special purpose vehicle for European nations with the aim of creating a vehicle to enable those countries to continue to trade with Iran without the use of U.S. dollars in order to circumvent U.S. sanctions. 
But remember, if you're not using US dollars, then the US can't really do much if you're breaking their sanctions. So it's very, very interesting that you're seeing this. And one, of, one, one really interesting thing is that Russia, after, after hearing this comment that came from um, Secretary Secretary Mnuchin on CNBC, he actually said, quote, if China doesn't follow these sanctions, we will put additional sanctions on them and prevent them from accessing the US and international dollar system. And that's quite meaningful. That's incredible. On the back of that, mm. the Russian central bank then sold $81 billion of US assets into other currencies, uh, currencies such as the yen, the euro, and the Chinese yuan. And in fact, they took up, I believe it's 80 or 90% of all Chinese bonds that were bought last year by foreigners were bought by the Russian central bank. And that's incredible. Interesting. And what, is this really something that can be laid at the feet of the current administration or, or how much of this was already in process even previously with Obama? Well, I don't think anyone's ever come out like Treasury Secretary Mnuchin did and, and said, look, you know, we will cut people out of the U.S. markets and freeze funds and then cut them out of the international dollar system or SWIFT. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's a first. And it makes people sort of sit there and say, well, you know, if, 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 if if their weapon is not being able to use the U.S. dollar, then we'll find other ways to do it. Now, China obviously has come out with their own uh, futures now trading in, in oil. So you can now buy oil in yuan. They're also talking directly with Saudi Arabia. It seems to me that you know, China feels like you know, maybe we don't need to use the dollar quite as much as we, we, we would. And given that we're number one or number two in terms of a trade partner with most, most countries in the world, why should we accept the dollar? Why can't we mm -hmm. demand they pay us in yuan? And obviously, if there's international demand for, for yuan, then you know, the yuan can strengthen and they can sell a lot more Chinese T-bills and uh, grow that, that part of their country, which, which right now the, the Chinese government bond market is absolutely de minimis compared to the U.S. bond market. It's interesting. And, and, and with that, just to subtly shift gears there, and let, let's talk about the, the bond market and the equity markets right now in the United States. The, there, there's been a lot of discussion around... Um, intended and unintended consequences regarding the recession. And, and there, there's one group of folks that are saying, you know, the, the, the recession's inevitable, it's gonna happen 2020, 2021. And then, and then on top of that, there's another group of folks saying that the current administration's policies are, are aggravating that and, and, and kind of pushing that. And then alongside that, you have, you know, you have Jerome Powell who effectively is using two tools to, to tighten, you know, one is, uh, is rates and the second is what they're doing in terms of pairing back QE. Um, what, what do you see here going forward? Like, so the question is one, is there a real threat of, of recession and, and is that bad? Because, you know, we've had a 10 year run here. So this, there, there's an argument to be made that, that we might need to cool off and, uh, and two, what, what, what are the variables here that policymakers need to be aware of, both fiscally in the context of the administration and, and uh, Powell on his end in terms of maybe starting to taper back both tools that he's been using? Um, regarding the U.S. recession, I'm probably in the camp that we're not going to see one soon. I think that the Federal Reserve has gotten the message that the balance sheet and the size of the balance sheet is important to the market. Now, having the balance sheet, um, I remember when they raised the balance sheet, and before they did that, Bernanke, I don't know if you remember, put out a Washington uh, Post uh, op-ed where he came out and he said, look, you know, we're going to sit here, we're going to add to the wealth effect, we're going to boost equity markets, we're going to boost housing markets in the U.S., and we're going to do that by quantitative uh, easing. Now, if you were then to take 
you know, the opposite of that, you'd expect the opposite to happen. You'd expect housing prices to come off. You'd expect to see equity prices come off as well. And if that's the case, then, you know, the Fed has to understand that they can't sit there all the time and, and then say, you know, the balance sheet runoff is irrelevant. They have to come out and they have to say, well, it is relevant. And we're monitoring that now as much as we are raising rates. Because a lot of us look at it and say, every single month that goes by where they continue to reduce the balance sheet, that's equivalent to, I don't know, maybe 15 basis points of rate rises. And if that's the case, then you're mm -hmm. getting rate rises in the U.S. or the economy will feel rate rises in the U.S. from not just the Fed raising rates, which is something we can all read about in the newspaper, but also from them decreasing the balance sheet, which is something you don't read about in the newspaper. And so right. there, there's a real anxiety in the markets about the pace of, with, with which they'll start reducing the balance sheet. And obviously, it seems to me that we're going to probably see a cutoff in rate rises. So what's seen in the newspaper of you know, the Fed raising rates and said that it'll be the Fed's on hold. If that's the case, they can continue down the balance sheet in terms of you know, reducing the balance sheet. And, but they can't do both at the same time, which is really what had been happening over the past, what, six to eight months. And so as long as they stop using two pincers and they can just go with one, I think that the market can kind of be hoodwinked into thinking that everything's fine. Now, is, is the consumer doing well in the U.S.? Apparently, you know, JP, uh, Chase came out at, at, the, uh, at Davos and they said, look, you know, the consumer is still very, very strong. I think that's certainly the case, but there has certainly been a huge push out towards risk in the U.S. and elsewhere because of very, very low rates in the U.S. And there's an anxiety about those very risky assets now being seen as being risky. And I think that that's the important part. And I think that's what people are anxious about. They're not anxious about the blue chip companies. They're anxious about those fringes or those unicorns that were out there that were getting money thrown at them. And now that money may be lost. I think that if you see something, it's going to be in the new economy rather than the old economy. Let, let, let's play with that for a second. I, I, I would gently push back on that. I'm not, and again, feel free to disagree. I'm not sure I agree with the statement that, um, you know, the, the private market uh, uh, is, is going to hurt us as much as it is. I, I, I think your point on the, the, like, again, to oversimplify it, something, the, my read of this seems to be that the the it's going to be something in high yield, and it's going to be a classic company that just leveraged the bejesus out of themselves while they had access to free capital. Yet the business just really wasn't there to support the debt. Well, you could be you um, could throw and then and then true and 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 I and again I think to, to your point, the question is then how much of a systemic risk to the system that actually presents because the, 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 there's more and more data coming out now that's saying we're actually more leveraged now than we were, you know, 2007, 2008. I think in the high yield, but just, let's just look on a liquidity stance. So in high yields before Dodd-Frank, there was maybe 100 dealers that were trading this product. And now most of the trading is actually being done by inter-dealer brokers rather than by banks. And, and so you've got maybe... 30 people now trading this product as opposed to, you know, thousands. And I think that that means that there's a very, very small hole for people to get out of should there be significant declines in the high yield market. And, you know, I think the folks are really worried about liquidity in that market. Um, in terms of you know, where's high yield going to go? Well, look, if, if the easy money's not there anymore, then for sure high yield is going to take a little bit of a hit because as you well know, I'm sure, you know, there's one high-yield bond, and it begets another high-yield bond with the same company, then another, then another, and it starts to pile on. And if the free money's not there anymore, then it, then it collapses like a house of cards. And, and to your point, the, the 
on the Fed side, I mean, there, there's still very, very little evidence of anything inflationary that would cause a concern. But, but at a minimum, they've got some dry powder to work with vis-a-vis -vis rates being higher and, and the improvement they've been able to do already with the balance sheet, correct? Yeah, I think well, the, the, certainly the balance sheet has improved, but it's still you know, extremely high relative to any time in U.S. history. Uh, are rates back to normal? I'd say they're probably back to normal, but, they're, but that's the rates that you see. Again, you know, the balance sheet, because it's not back to normal, it's, uh, it means that we're still like, you know, over leveraged in terms of liquidity in the United States. And, and in order to pull that liquidity back, I think I, I'd estimate it probably be around you know, five or 6% would be added if they get the balance sheet back to where they were before. And the US economy obviously can't handle that. So at some point they're gonna have to start pausing the balance sheet as well as stop raising rates. Interesting. And, and finally, just, just, just before we go, the, the, now that we have the shutdown com, uh, completed uh, and, and done, and to your, to your earlier point on this administration playing three-card Monty, it, it was surprising today opening the papers to see how much discussion there was about Trump being a lame duck, you know, that, that, that there could now be a primary uh, competition against him. There's rumors now that Romney now is going to throw his hat in the ring pretty strongly. Uh, to be the party candidate, how how relevant is that in in the, in the discussion? Because I think to your earlier point, there's an entertainment value as it relates to that. But in terms of the substantive issues that are there, it doesn't seem relevant. And and part two of that question, Doug, would be is as listeners take away your thoughts for the week. What what are the two or three things they should be focused on outside of the drama in D.C.? Right. Um, well, I think that it wasn't Pelosi that ended up breaking Trump's back. I think that it was the air traffic controllers, and I'm not sure if the, the newspapers picked up on this, but about, uh, I think it was probably Thursday, the air traffic controllers came out and said, you know, listen, we're short-staffed short, we're short -staffed right now, and this isn't going to help uh, us, and there could be an accident at any moment. And then on Friday, LaGuardia, JFK, and Washington, D.C. airports all started halting flights from landing. And it was really after that that, that the president came out and said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to do something, and we're going to do a deal. Now, the president's given them you know, a limited amount of time, and I'm quite sure that in order to keep his base, he needs the, the wall, the wall in, in, in some sort of way. In order to get the wall, if the, if the Democrats won't give it to him and they're not going to, then he has to declare a state of emergency. And if that's the case, then air traffic controllers can keep working, the Coast Guard can keep getting paid, but he can also then you know, take funds from other areas and throw that towards having a wall. So I think what you're going to see is a lot more attack ads put out by Trump, you know, discussing about how much crime is coming from the border and that sort of thing. And you've already seen on his Instagram feed today, he's come out and he's got you know, very slick commercials talking about the, the immigration crisis and how easy it is to cross the border. And I think he's going to you know, start to create a level of fear, almost like Powell did when we came into weapons of mass destruction and going into Iraq. You know, if he can create mm -hmm. enough fear about the border, then it's the Democrats are going to look bad because they're the ones that have said, you know what? It, it doesn't work for us. And, and what's interesting is in the play up to, to this this week, he had the Democrats in a situation where they had to pick, you know, closing the border with a, with a wall or helping uh, undocumented workers or, or the, the dreamers, you know, through DACA. And they, they turn around and they pick the undocumented workers in DACA rather than the wall. And I think that's interesting, too, it will probably be used by Trump when it comes to election time, because you'll say, look, they're not about protecting U.S. citizens. They're about protecting non-U.S. citizens. So I think there's some, some really interesting mm. dynamics that came with all the fake votes and things like that. But certainly, I think each side got plenty of 
newsreel that they can use in commercials. What are we looking at this week? I think that Venezuela is probably the, 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 the biggest thing that we should be watching because no one's really looking at it. But Venezuela to me is, it's a powder keg in terms of how many nations are involved, all of them at loggerheads, all discussing different things in different, in different countries. You know, Turkey obviously has been in, in people's minds, but also you know, Russia is on the US, uh, right in front of the US and, and, and we're having issues with Russia. We've got issues with China and, and talking about the trade deal. And now we've got Venezuela sitting there on the chopping block. And so I think that Venezuela could be a bargaining term for a number of different things. I think that it's very, very important. And you know, we should probably watch where US aircraft carriers are going this week because it wouldn't surprise me if they're moving towards the Southern Hemisphere. And you think it'll just be Venezuela this week will be consuming the headlines? Well, I think that obviously there's going to be a lot of press about how Trump has lost, he's lost his base. But I sincerely believe that once this, uh, this interim period's over, that he's going to do a state of emergency and will get his wall. He knows very well without the wall, you know, he, he, he's nowhere. Mm -hmm. and, and the base wants the wall. And it's become his new you know, slogan for next year. Build the wall and crime will fall. It's crazy. And, and, and to your point, the, the, uh, I think what's also ironic and, and again, forgive me for sounding like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but, but, uh, there, there were a lot of components to what he's asking for the wall that, that were being discussed and technically approved by the Democrats under the prior administration. So it's interesting now that they've, uh, chosen to do this. And I think too, to your point, it's, it's also interesting noticing more and more of the step back in the dialogue around, um, around impeachment and, uh, but it's easy. I, I think I totally agree. I think we're going to see Venezuela in the headlines. And uh, uh, what, what are your thoughts, too, just before you go, in, in terms of China-U.S. trade talks? Do, do you think we're going to get any type of stealth announcement in the next couple of weeks, or do you see that as something more in March? Well, let, let, let's just go back to something you said earlier, which was the Democrats supporting you know, border security. There are plenty of videos going around with Obama calling for border security and against illegal aliens of uh, Pelosi doing the same thing, of Schumer's doing the same thing. And all of this is going to be fodder for, for, uh, for Trump when it, when it comes into the election time in 2020. I think that when it comes down to China and trade talks, both China and the U.S. want to have good trade talks. The U.S. is most concerned about IP theft. Obviously, they're going to talk about why it's very, very important for us to sell more soybeans to China, because that's something that everyone can see quickly on TV that farmers are now selling more and exporting it on a boat. It's the IP theft thing that's, that's much more important in terms of you know, the dollars that, that, that the US can, can gain back. I think you're gonna see both of them come to the table. Both of them come with something very positive. And if you've noticed, Trump and Mnuchin use the Chinese trade almost as if they're the Fed and they're cutting rates. So when the market starts to take a dip, Mnuchin comes out or, or Larry Kudlow and they say, look, you know, great, great news on the trade talks, you know, that they're moving along and then the market picks up again. And so the trade talks are, are, are very useful for Trump for as long as they're ongoing. Once they've actually passed, then he loses that as a way to prop up the market. So I think that we're going to see the trade talks move along. I think they're going to move along positively. And uh, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very excited about where the market can go on the back of that, because I think if we see these positive trade talks, we've seen the, sh the, the shutdown has ended. Um, and I think both of these are very positive. And now you get the Fed that, that's very dovish. So I'm not, I'm not one of these guys calling for a 20% correction in, in the Dow. I think the Dow is going to continue to move higher. I think that there is some anxiety about high yield debt. 
and, and I'm watching that you know very very closely, but you know I'm I'm much more interested in, in I guess the, uh, the the Chinese trade talks obviously in Venezuela. My goodness, Doug. I think are are we actually ending this segment with us potentially agreeing on something? Is that what just happened? <laughs> this may be a first, Frank. This may be a first for sure. <laughs> well, good stuff as always. Terrific to have you here. We we love having you on. And uh, uh, and again, for our listeners, you can also reach out to Doug on our website, where we have a Lincoln community group available, where you can message him directly and see some of his research. Doug, as always, a pleasure. And for our listeners, thank you again for listening to Unhedged. We will be back next week, and we may be back during the week, depending on news events. And Doug, have a wonderful weekend. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to SohoCap.com slash Unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in, and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.